Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, Clarissa here, and boy, do we have a great episode for you today. On this episode of the Food Junkies podcast, we have Lauren Anton here to discuss exercise addiction. We thought this topic was critical to discuss so our listeners can examine their relationship with movement. We also hope you can compare it to your food addiction because abstinence from all food is not the answer. Just like with exercise addiction, we can't just stop moving, especially because we know how important it is for mood and physical health. So Lauren tells us how we can learn to manage and navigate this trickier addiction. Lauren Anton is a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified personal trainer in private practice in Culver City. As a certified eating disorder registered dietitian, Lauren specializes in eating disorders athletes and eating disorders, exercise dependence and avoidance, sports nutrition, and helping those who struggle with their weight find peace with their body. She is also an approved supervisor through the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals to train other dietitians in eating disorder treatment. Lauren specializes in assisting clients in moving away from a punitive experience with food and movement to one of self-compassion and self-care. Her non-diet, weight-inclusive, health-at-every-size approach allows clients to shed the rules and regulations that bind them to behaviors that no longer serve them. Lauren is passionate about normalizing and enhancing the eating experience and encourages each of her clients to taste their food with all their senses in her mindful eating experientials. As an expert in eating disorders and nutrition therapy, Lauren has spoken at numerous national conferences and events on adolescents, eating disorders, athletes and eating disorders, and sports nutrition, and has presented her own research examining the effects of intuitive eating-based nutrition education on adolescent female cross-country runners. She's been quoted in publications such as the Washington Post, BuzzFeed, and the Huffington Post. Lauren has served as co-chair on the Academy of Eating Disorders Weight Stigma and Social Justice Special Interest Group, and as a board member on the IAEDP Los Angeles Chapters Board. Molly and I just adored this conversation with Lauren. She is an all-around wonderful human being, and we have a huge respect for the way she practices. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Lauren, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, Clarissa. Hey, Molly. Good to see you both. (laughs) So we usually like to start off to introduce our guests to our audience. So can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to the field of dietetics? And can you speak about your personal slash professional journey to where you are now? You know what? I'm glad you asked this question because it actually pertains to today's topic. So what brought me to the field of dietetics to begin with, it was actually a career switch for me. So I had been doing theater and doing personal training. And I still have my personal training cert. I've kept it for over 20 years now. And so what a friend said was, you should, you're always in the gym. You should, (laughs) you should completely like, you know, teach spin or, you know, kickboxing. That was big back then. And I, had auditions to go to. So I thought, you know what? I'll be a personal trainer because I was also weightlifting. I was in there every single day. So that's what I did was I got, I got certified as a personal trainer and I could like see all my clients, like starting at like five in the morning and then be done by the time auditions were happening. What happened was I got sick of it. And But just, you know, just sort of, I was very into like functional fitness and I was getting tired of the bro culture. And I just was like, I need to like expand into something bigger. You know, I wasn't sure what that was going to be. I was thinking about being a physical therapist. I was thinking about being a dietitian. 
kind of getting into the nutrition aspect because they would actually like at the gym I worked at, they wanted us to talk about nutrition. So I would like blindly talk about nutrition. Like, wow. So I know that that happens anyway. So then I ended up interviewing like, or kind of taking people, you know, how you like, it's just do a little networking. And I just was like wanting to talk to physical therapists and dietitians. And it just so happened in my sample size, you know, (laughs) the people I spoke with, you know, the dietitians seemed, I just dealt with them more. They seemed happier. (laughs) Since I have met many happy, very happy and fulfilled physical therapists. And with that said, it, it just, this was my path. And so I ended up going back to school for my master's and I had to take a prereqs because it had been a beat since I took, you know, some of the sciences. So I was like, let me just redo these <laughs> and just, I want them fresh and in the front of my brain. And so I ended up doing, getting really all A's and I ended up doing a, like just a little pilot study. I, I, you know, I don't suggest this to anyone doing their master's. This is more something you would do for a PhD, but I ran a whole pilot study at two different school sites in the same city. So it was a convenient sample, but like, you know, I wanted to see if like intuitive eating concepts, because I had just gotten into that. Right. So I wanted to, I, there were two running teams I was working with all girls running teams. And I wanted to see if intuitive eating and nutrition education and sports nutrition education and would increase intuitive eating would reduce you know, it, it disordered eating tendencies. So, I mean, obviously the sample size was so small, but the results pointed to, yes, it did. Because one, the, the control group wasn't getting anything. And, you know, I'm sitting there talking to the coaches and the parents and the kids and, you know, like all that stuff. So of course they ended up benefiting from that. So that's how I got involved in like, and then I went to work in eating disorder treatment from there and have always had athletes at my heart. And yeah. So, and I think your other question was my own personal experience. So my own personal experience with all this was, so I have been a runner since I was what, like seventh grade. And I started running in track. And then in high school, I ran in cross country and track. And then I ran for a time. I ran, I ran for D1 in college until I blew my uh, heel out my Achilles tendon and it was epic and horrible and that kind of ended it for me, but I didn't stop running, you know, and here's the thing about an athlete, like you are asked to consistently put yourself in a position of like, like, honestly, like, you know, 50 feet into a run, like into a, um, a race in particular, I'm freaking tired. <laughs> like, like Normal people would stop. You keep going. You just get used to like, I taste blood in my mouth. I'm going, I, you know, my heart's beating out of my chest and, you know, I just achieve a Zen state within all of this. And that really jived with my personality. I also had issues with food from the time I was little. I was like, eat, 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 eat. Oh, seafood, eat it, seafood, eat it. Now, part of that was my mom was very restrictive you know, like no snacking and she was doing her best, right? Like she was like, I want you to eat your dinner. So therefore no, you can't eat. So, you know, and she's trying to create a healthy atmosphere and all that good stuff, just being a good parent. And like my brain, how my brain takes it is, you know, oh, I got to get the food. I got to get, you know, if I'm over at a friend's house, I'm going to eat all their goldfish and all the food I couldn't get at my mom's house. Right. You know, at my parents' house, cause they just, they didn't have that food. So by the time I was like in high school, I didn't like what that was doing to my body. (laughs) And so I would restrict over exercise, you know, binge. I mean, I had like timed binges. I would be like, okay, I got to be at practice at X o'clock. I got to stop eating by then. By the way, don't work. Don't do that. Doesn't work. You're still sick at practice. You know, I had the whole thing on lock and that continued all through like even, and it, and it actually got worse after I had to quit competitively running. So I ended up, so the eat, like the body stuff, the body dissatisfaction really grew after, cause you know, my, your body changes when you're not a D1 athlete anymore. You look like not a D1 athlete now, you know, and that's just facts. It's neither here nor there. And then also I was just like, 
had a binge issue and then I would restrict in response, binge issue. It started with binging though, for me. Okay. And I'll be upfront and say, you know, I'm definitely practice of from, from a weight inclusive paradigm. I don't look at someone and think, okay, you got XYZ eating issues. Never do I do that. You know, I, I try to include all foods until that, you know, and I work here, here's the deal. I work in private practice. So this is like, if someone's like, I can't keep such and such in my house, I can't eat this. I'm like, okay, let's table that for now. You know, we got other fish to fry. When I worked at other like higher levels of care, it's a little more one size fit all, I'll admit, but I get the luxury of tailoring my treatment to people like very individually. So some people, their binging does start with restriction. It really does, you know, and I can see it in the assessment, you know, you're like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, and then also in the thought process. And then there's people where it's, it, if they are, it's, you know, if they're restricting, it might be precipitated by binge behavior. And so it just ends up becoming this huge conglomeration of behaviors that look similar, but you need to, as a clinician, be know like what, what came first, the chicken or the egg and what's, how's this person's thinking, you know? So anyway, that, that is, <laughs> I've talked a lot. <laughs> No, that's, that's great. That's why we wanted you here is to share, right? You, you are our expert guest today. And you and I met in the Academy of Eating Disorders, the special interest group for substance use disorders. And in there, we talk a lot about eating disorders, substance use disorders, food addiction. It all comes up, you know, but I was really interested in your experience in working with exercise addiction, exercise bulimia. So can you kind of, and I don't know which one would, should we start with exercise addiction or exercise bulimia? Does it fall on a spectrum? And if so, you know, what's kind of the lower end of the spectrum? Are they different? Yeah, that's okay. So I think there's shades in each because you just like, so when I, you know, and I'll say this about like, any, like my clients, I mean, I can use my own experience as well, but like, you know, so I'll work with athletes and they, they are, they, there's just a certain, they just get used to that. And when they're out of their sport, it's, you know, if they end up like not being in their sport anymore, it's, and I work with a lot of post-collegiate athletes, they end up like missing that. So too, with people who are in new sobriety, they will start to like either, you know, if they're going down the exercise route, it's that, it's that, it's that all or nothing. So, okay. So you've got two different ball games going on. You got, you know, but like it, it ends up looking the same. So like someone who used to be a, this competitive athlete can't stop doing this. And it's like, what are you training for? You know, and like big telltale signs of like an exercise dependence like would be exercising despite injury is a obvious red flag, but not obvious to the person. You know, it's just not obvious to the person. I exercise all the time through injury. You're asked to as an athlete. So that's a really interesting one. Like you, you're barely like ready to go. And they're like, you got to be back, back and back and running, you know, or back on the whatever, you know, on the court. So, and, and a lot of times that happens at, especially like high school and, and, you know, it's in high school, like sometimes, you know, like if someone was injured, it would be like, oh, they're just being lazy. You just learn to run through things. And certainly in college, you run through things. Like everyone was always injured. Even when I was like running marathons in my thirties, like everyone was injured. <laughs> you know, I was, I was injured constantly battling like mild injury to severe injury, but nothing was going to stop me from accomplishing that goal. So sometimes that like people will be like mood, right? Like I can't, it, it helps my mood. You'll see this too in like new sobriety too, or any sobriety to be honest, it could be years long and they sort of transfer the addiction. Like I, they're getting endorphins from it. And you know, if they like, here's a real telltale sign too of exercise addiction. They say, okay, I have like an hour. I'm going to go out and do blah, blah, blah. Right. And you, know, maybe they're on a run or in the, they're in the gym and it's like two hours later and they're like, oh my God, where am I? That happens. That happens. For me, that's not my personal experience. Mine was like, I would say exercise bulimia. I see a lot of that too, where it's like a backlash, you know? 
And then also the, po- the post collegiate athlete stuff, like where I'm like, I-, I don't know what to do with myself. Now I actually cannot exercise as much as I would even like, like in a moderate way because of past injuries. And I feel it important to say these things because this is the wear and tear that can happen from stuff in your teens and twenties and, you know, maybe even into the thirties as well. That was me. Right. And now I'm like 49 and I'm like, oh my God, I, there's not a day like right now it's my knee right now. I'm like, what did I do? I did nothing. It's just old stuff, you know? And then my shoulder, I rolled over in bed, you know, part of it's age. Another part of it is like, I have to rein myself in when I work out. Like I have to be like, okay, I am not, and this is important for exercise, you know, someone who would term themselves an exercise addict or dependent on it. And also anyone who used to be like a a high level athlete of any sort. If you can't like be bought back to when you were 18 or so or whatever, and or back to your competitive days and think you're going to pick up where you left off, right? It's like, okay, I need to do old lady exercise. I, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm teasing. <laughs> I know you all are laughing. You can't hear it folks, but they're all laughing. Uh, we're laughing. We're laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny though. I got to be like, okay, you know what? I like to, if I go to the gym, I like to look at the older folks working out. I'm like them, them. Cause look at, they're like in their six, like sixties, not even old to me anymore, but like seventies, eighties and you know, even beyond. And I'm like that person, I want to be that person like that. Cause you're, they're like all gabbing with their friends. They're like doing the dances in the pool. I'm like this, that's community. You know, if that's another thing about exercise addiction is lack of community. The people who are, they don't have they're, they're actually, they're actually not, they're, they're foregoing socialization. They're foregoing work. I mean, I, I, I know people who have lost their jobs because they were taking like three hour gym breaks in the middle of their workday. Well, guess what? Bye. You know, that doesn't work here. And, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so when you're foregoing work obligations, like parenting, okay. And relationships, I know people who trained at like, you know, doing Ironmans and long distance stuff, ultras, or even just a marathon, right? You know, just a marathon. Ha ha ha. It's really hard. Okay. I think in my head, I'm in my humble opinion, (laughs) but you know, I heard a lot of people talking like when we were training, being like, my wife is so mad at me or my so-and-so is so mad at me. Like she doesn't understand. I did a 15 mile plus run today. I, you know, I'm out for the rest of the day. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Like, so there, I don't know the whole story, but like, you know, with my clients, I'll hear that sort of stuff. So that's the sort, that's how to tell when it's, dependence, you know, whether you want to term it at addiction or dependence, I use those terms interchangeably. It's the same thing in the room when I'm treating the client. I don't get into semantics with the client. And also as a dietitian, I can't diagnose. So guess what? I don't care. I'm going to treat the client the way I treat the client. And so, yeah, I, I take it as it comes with them, you know? So yeah. No, I love that so much. And specifically, I mean, I certainly did a lot of competitive track and field and cross country and like softball and all that in high school and through my grade school. And that was the message, push through the pain, right? That's what we're told over and over. And just as you were talking, I was like, yeah, my my real eating disorder, I would say started like as soon as I got to university, which is when I st- dropped all the competitive sports, And in that, when you were speaking, I was like, yeah, that is exactly where my exercise went away from community and became completely isolated. Because who wants to go for a walk with me at rapid pace for three hours? (laughs) Around, Around the campus at University of Toronto. That's just not a good time. It's also really cold out. Like that is just not a good time for anyone. So, but of course you're just like, no, this is good. I feel good. It makes me feel great. And so, yeah, thank you for that. That I really appreciate that. So when clients come to you and you are screening 
for exercise addiction, dependence. Do you use things like the exercise dependence scale or the exercise addiction inventory? Do you find those helpful? So when I was at a higher level of care, I did use, I can't can't even, I I have to literally go to my file and look at it. And I would use it in a group format just to get, I'd already, I'm like, I already know. Like I can tell because you just know what questions to ask based on clinical experience, also based on reading the literature. Yeah. And and then uh, my own personal experience, I guess, but that's just like an N of one. I'm more interested in like what the person's bringing into the room and, you know, anyway, so I used it there really to get them to see like, oh my gosh, I have an issue. When I first started my private practice, I would do that. And I actually stopped because it was just like, let's just cut to the chase. You know, uh, now if someone needed convincing, I would absolutely pull that little guy out and, (laughs) and do it, you know, and be like, look at this. Don't believe me. Believe the literature. But I don't know what it is. Um, I really have to pull out the literature with clients. Some clinicians do a lot. Like they got to send clients. Maybe I just don't attract that type of client. I have no idea. But like, for some reason, clinically speaking, like I rarely have to pull out literature because like, in fact, I sometimes as a matter of course, I will, but like to convince a client, I rarely have to do it. I don't know if I'm just convincing in and of myself or what. I have no idea. Or maybe we've had you know, cause I don't like necessarily in the first session or even the first several sessions for that matter, like plop down. Here's what I think. Think, 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 you know, it's more of like getting, I, I liken it to, you know, the yellow brick road. You can't tell Dorothy at the start, like, Hey, click your heels together. She's got to walk all the way through and have the whole experience. So it's almost like they have to come to it themselves and be like, Hey, I, you know, like I, I had a client say recently, Hey, I'm going to schedule this such and such race. And I was like, okay, so we just got out of an injury. Okay. And guess what? I'm I'm not remembering this specific, but I I think what happened was the the client like kind of injured themselves a little bit. They did. And I was like, you know, okay, so let's, are we going to rethink the the race? (laughs) Yeah. And they were like, yeah, you know, you're right. <laughs> I'm like, let's like let go. And, you know, and of course it was like a long race. I'm like, why are, can we start with a 5k and maybe we walk run it? Like, does it have to be like, I'm going to run the marathon. I'm going to go to ultras. I'm, you know, why does it have to be so big right away? You know, not that there's anything wrong with those sports. If that's in your wheelhouse. And some bodies, like actually what came to my mind just now is some bodies are just not genetically designed for certain types of things. Like if you're constantly getting injured, that is your body saying like, hey, this isn't working. Like take stock, listen, don't sit there and force the square peg into the round hole, figure something else out. There's other activities. And that's actually something I do in session. You know, I'll I'll, I'll actually do a timeline with a client. I'll be like, okay, let's write out like every single like movement type of movement you did from birth to now. And you can do it like your time bracket. Some people do it like, you know, preschool. So I do a timeline with clients, you know, and I want them to see like from birth to now, what was the movement you did and why, and what was the result that I find that's my thing now, as opposed to having them do like one of the inventories getting them to see like, okay, look at when I was a baby, I did these things for, and why did you do it? To explore, to learn to walk. I played tag with my friends to hang out with my friends. Then you can see like later on, you know, okay, I played soccer. Oh, I really loved the, the strategy of it. You know, okay. Then I, this is a no vilification against any sport, by the way. Then think, you know, then I quit soccer and I started to run, you know, okay. Why? Well, I like, I liked uh, the compliments I got. I felt, you know, people were like, I, uh, you know, people who used to think I was too heavy to run now suddenly were complimenting me. Something like, so, so variations on, you know, and they can see like, okay, here's where gymnastics was super fun for me. And then I got this certain coach or I switched, I switched gyms. 
then it got really competitive. And then it became, then I, that's when it became involved in my, because I'll ask like, when did it, when did your eating disorder come in? If, if they have an eating disorder, which most of the time, if someone's coming to me, they do just FYI. So that's the bias I have is like, like almost everyone I see has like an eating issue. So with that, then is that where we start distinguishing between exercise addiction and exercise bulimia? Like, do you see exercise addiction or dependency more so like in those athletes that then maybe are no longer competing to the same level that they were because of injury, or maybe they've aged out of the the system in which they were competing, that kind of thing. And then does the bulimia exercise bulimia side of it really come with the eating disorder or kind of walk me through the distinction there? Yeah. So like I'll see with eating disorder, it's more like exercise bulimia. Like they're doing it as a way to like compensate or they're doing it as a way, perhaps it's not bulimia. Like it could be part of their anorexia. Okay. It's just all a part of their restriction. So I've had clients who, you know, barely eating all day and exercising like four or five hours a day. Okay. And they're like, oh, it helps my mood. They'll say the exact same things, but it's like, why are they doing it? You know, well, it helps their mood. First of all, if someone is that, like, if someone is malnourished, of course they're going to be like, feel antsy because the body is physiologically gearing them up to go find food not to go run for four hours in a gym or whatever. You're literally like that antsiness. Your body was meant to like, oh, clearly we're in a famine. We need to get out of this area. So let's walk three hours where there's food. That's what's happening. And so I educate the clients that that, that, that indeed what is what's happening. And to use that, that antsiness is meant to walk them to the fridge. You know, that, of course, this is all easier said, you know, like, I don't just like suddenly say No, that. it's a bit more nuanced, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. They're like, <laughs> oh context. my God, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so what are the, what are then like kind of the red flags? So you kind of laid out what we could look for, like to kind of start to determine if this was like exercise addiction, like what are kind of the red flags that would let us know this is maybe like bulimia, this is compensatory behavior? The way, like the way they're, it was certainly if they're, I have to burn the calories. I mean, that's pretty obvious. If there's like a body image component to it, it might be like a compensatory measure. Okay. And, you know, and look at their food. Is it restrictive? Is it restrict binge purge, you know, like, and I say purge, meaning like it could be purge too. It could be self-induced vomiting, but what is the purge? It could be exercise, restrict, binge, vomit, exercise, restrict, binge, vomit, exercise, like, uh, you know, and cycling at various lengths through that. So you mean all that time when I was like massively tapping my foot in class or crossing my legs and shaking my leg, I wasn't just, you know, burning calories. It was that energy that was causing me to do that. It is very curious looking back in hindsight now at at that Clarissa, because at that time, that's what you tell yourself, right? It's like sitting still still feels very uncomfortable. And I wonder, like thinking back to that time with that level of body dissatisfaction that I had and really relating to what you're saying is I'm not that college level athlete body anymore. How do you work with that body dissatisfaction piece, which can sometimes drive the eating disordered behavior? I mean, that is a lot. So I I call like what, you know, one, I give like some just heart, you know, just education on like human development. Like this is the way the human body develops. And so it, it, you know, I'll talk a little bit about set point theory. Like here, here's your body. Okay. Your body look like this at this age, doing that level of activity. Now, this is, you know, part of life, you know, like the season of life is now, we're not doing that and your body's going to look a little different. And so there's a grieving process, you know, much like with someone like who's struggling with binging, right? There's a grief, like at, at the end of every meal, there's, there might be, especially at first, right? A grieving process as, you know, because every time we eat, we do get a dopamine response, and so it's like, we have to grieve. It's the, the meal is over. We're full, but it's going to come again. And you're not in a famine. You're going to get food again. Cause that's the big fear, right? Oh my God. I, I feel like I'm not going to get enough. I'm not going to get enough. Remind yourself, Hey, I'm going to have a snack at three, like go to the meal plan. If we're working off of the meal plan. Okay. So not all my clients do have that just FYI. And so wait, what were we, what was the question again? I want to make sure I'm answering it. Exercise bulimia, did you say? I think I was 
Now I can't remember what our I know. question was. And we're saying that body dissatisfaction and oh, it driving yes. eating disorder. Because yes. like the constant body thoughts, right? Is like I look in the mirror, maybe I don't have the same muscles. Maybe I'm not as lean and cut as I was when I yes. used to because I was just doing so much physical exercise. So now you're telling me to eat more food and be in this body. What? Yeah, that, right. And it is, like I said, like that grieving process and of like, okay, this is a past body I had, you know, something I'll say to my, especially, you know, D1 collegiate athletes, you know, post-collegiate, I'll be like, are you working out four hours a day? Because that's, that is what happens. I mean, it's legit. And that's not them being over-exercising. That's them like practice, going to practice. That's training. So, you know, what kind of life do you have now? My, like getting them to reality check. Like, okay, what is the life I have now? Oh, I have a job. I have a family. I have this. What are your priorities? What are your values? Like, so I'm pulling from DBT. I'm pulling from a act, you know, acceptance and commitment. And like, what are your values? Those change. And, you know, obviously always working with a therapist because this gets into obviously therapist territory, right? And so, but for me, I always bring it back to the food and bring it back to, you know, the exercise. And so I also reality checking, like, what, how is your body reacting? How is your energy level? You know, what's, what's your actual health like, you know, like literally your, your, your tissues, how are they doing? And there is a bit of acceptance there in terms of like, Hey, my body looks different. This happens. Like if you have a baby, like if you're not mixed, you know, you're going to be like, how do you want to live your life? Do you want to live it chasing a certain body type or do you want to what? you know, what is it? Be in relationship with your yourself and with food and with people around you in a different way. Hi, I'm Clarissa Kennedy and I'm a perfectionist, not a recovering perfectionist, a proud perfectionist. And if this sounds like something you are, then our Sweet Sobriety May workshop on perfectionism is for you. In the wellness world, the language around perfectionism is shame-inducing. In the medical model, perfectionism is pathologized, something to be cured, healed, treated. Tagging perfectionism onto anything we don't like becomes almost second nature. Can't stick to our food plan because we had a slip? Perfectionism. Inability to love our body? Perfectionism. Feeling anxious about what other people think of me? Perfectionism. Can't sleep because I'm worrying about a presentation tomorrow? Perfectionism. Perfectionism is a phenomenon, not a disorder. The larger culture is more focused on the dysfunctional emphasis of perfectionism because the mental health industry is built on an illness model. We're always more focused on the dysfunctional aspects of every psychological experience. All the material out there right now is about how to overcome, let go of, even how to escape the tyranny of perfectionism. Oh, I just have to lower my standards? Why didn't I think of that? Managing perfectionism by telling perfectionists not to be perfectionists is like telling angry people to calm down. Never has this worked. Perfectionists won't be average. It's like telling an artist not to create or stripping a writer of their ability to compose. What we haven't been told is there are two different types of perfectionism, adaptive and maladaptive. Psychology professor and researcher, Dr. Joachim Stober, is the leading expert on perfectionism, as well as author of the book, The Psychology of Perfectionism, Theory, Research, and Application. In his research, he found that adaptive perfectionists demonstrated the highest levels of self-esteem cooperation, and lower levels of procrastination, defensiveness, maladaptive coping styles, and interpersonal problems. They report the highest level of meaning, subjective happiness, and life satisfaction, also the lowest levels of anxiety and depression among the groups. Maladaptive perfectionism has been linked both conceptually and empirically to eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors. Studies have shown that individuals in recovery from these eating disorders are even more perfectionist than healthy controls. This bolsters its role as a risk factor for return of disordered eating symptoms and as almost a scar that remains in recovery. Perfectionism used to hold me back, and that's because I thought it was a bad thing. 
Now I've embraced that it is my superpower and I know that adaptive perfectionism is a good thing. I can use it to strive and accomplish in a positive, not a punitive way. This course is the ultimate guide to finding a self-compassionate way to manage our perfectionism. In this course, you'll learn what type of perfectionist are you? Adaptive perfectionism versus maladaptive perfectionism, perfectionistic strivings and perfectionistic concerns, behaviors of perfectionism, rules for living, unhelpful rules and assumptions, questions to help you examine your perfectionism, the power of perfectionism, how to deal with comparison, celebrating your perfectionism, 10 Jedi mind tricks to unlock you from overthinking everything, such as counterfactual thinking, effective forecasting, and so many more. And eight behavioral strategies for restoration habits for long-term growth, reframing, boundaries, how to trust yourself, and more. If any of this resonates with you, you are the reason I created this course. I hope that by applying these teachings, you can clear away the baggage that stands in your way and become a more fully realized human being. The world needs you to step up and give the gift of you. Life is hard whether or not you choose to become the person we both know you really are. So this course is giving you permission to go for it, to stop denying who you are and unleash your inner dynamo so you can live your powerful and authentic life. We can learn to enjoy our lives. Enjoy meaning in joy. Joy holds tremendous power. It is impossible to live joyfully without your joy benefiting the world. You persuade joy to come out of hiding and step into the spotlight through celebration. It's not enough to simply learn to appreciate perfectionism. Perfectionism is meant to be celebrated. What you get in this course is hours of pre-recorded videos, no expiration, downloadable resources and suggested at-home practices, no expiration, and four one-hour live support sessions, one per week with replay. The cost is $50 US. It'll be held every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time starting May 10th. Sign up at sweetsobriety.ca. Can't wait to see you there. But I think that, so like I ask my clients the same question, right? Like that comes up for us all the time in what we do. And everybody will say the obvious answer, Lauren, is I want my life to be about these relationships. I want my life to be about living passionately and traveling and all of these things, but I'm still bound up in, I can't get it out of my head, this number on the scale, this size on my pants, this way that my body used to look. And so therefore I'm spending all this time in the gym, eight hours on a bike or, you know, whatever it might be, maybe it's even, you know, and and maybe it's addiction and maybe it's bulimia. And again, like it, it sounds like there are some nuances that maybe we need to like suss out there. But I think it goes back to like how other than like asking our clients about their values and that kind of thing, like how do you help? with that body dissatisfaction, like that resolution that can, right. That we're kind of all looking for there. Like, do you have any sort of techniques or tools or do you kind of like send them back to like the therapist with that? What I give them do? education on um, like, look, you know, you have like a well-worn neurological pathway that is geared towards, I need my body to look a certain way. I will have them even fear spiral that out. Okay you know, what happens if you look, what happens if you don't have that body, right? Let's fear spiral that out. All right. And then also like, kind of, you know, the thing that was when you were talking, what was springing to my mind too, is I do a lot of like kind of breath work. So I'll talk to them about the vagus nerve and I'm like, look, you want to do the diaphragmatic breathing. So that antsiness that you feel. And, and so every time that you're thinking about like, body this, body that, or whatever, or I have to move. Okay. Or I have to binge or whatever it is, right? All of this is like taking a diaphragmatic breath. Even if it's one breath, even if it's just a couple breaths, I will show them different. So I rely a lot on uh, different breathing techniques as a result of that. Now, if someone wants to like do full on meditation, great. I will actually help them with that too. I did get, I did, I, I've been trained in a variety of, and practice a variety of meditation techniques. So it's not like I'm pulling it out of my butt. Um, and, 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 so, so we work on that, but I do talk to them about neuroplasticity 
and pull in that polyvagal theory, right? Like we need to build these new neurological pathways because for literally years, years upon years, you have relied on this neurological pathway. I feel uneasy, I go run. I feel uneasy, I whatever, you know? Absolutely. And and I think we do the same thing. Yeah, I was just going to say, so then for someone who still wants to participate in movement and is really does maybe need that endorphin, a bit of an endorphin rise, is it about setting a loving limit around like the times, the types of exercises? I'm, I know 100% it would be individual per the client you would be seeing, but what might that look like for someone? Yeah. I mean, cause so it, so it depends on like, so some person's like easy is another person's super hard. So obviously it's individualized, but the things we want to take a look at are like the type, like you were already saying, the type of exercise, the frequency, the amount of time and the intensity. So those are the variables that I will sort of massage, if you will, you know, along with the client, cause you have to have the client's buy-in. Everything I say is a suggestion. I'm like, well, bye. I mean, you're going to go out and do whatever you do, you know? So it's, it, it is up to you. So using that timeline, by the way, to harken back to that, I'll take like, what I have them do is like write down like the physical activity. Like I have them be very broad with their movement. If like picking flowers as a kid was like, they loved it, then that is, we put that on the list. You know, if skydiving or skiing or, you know, snowshoeing or something that they can't really get to all the time, I live in Los Angeles. So like, they can't really get to that all the time. Like I have them put that on the list anyway. Cause I'm like, what did you love about this? And so, so they get to know, like, what are they gleaning from this physical, from this purposeful exercise or this physical activity or this movement, right? What are you getting from it? You know, and then creating with the client a list of different movement, very broad that they can pull from. So, you know, for people who like, you know, like you were just sitting and what came into my head, Clarissa, is like when you were saying something about like you were sitting and like, you know, tapping, 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 you know, and it's like, okay, instead be still when you notice that and then know, okay, at the end of this class, say it's a college student. Okay. At the end of this class, I'm going to get up and I'm walking to my next class. I get to walk. I am going to feel the sunshine on me or the rain. Today it's raining in LA. You know, I'm going to feel that. I'm going to feel the wind. I'm going to look at the bird. I'm going to look at the tree, you know, or I'm going to like someone who works in an office. They can, maybe they can't get outside. Okay. I'm going to get up. I'm going to stretch like, you know, just a regular old stretch, you know, unless they want to like go get on a full on thing, but like go to the bathroom, go get some water, change your vantage point, maybe even go and talk to someone in the office and then sit back down to get up every hour, you know, ish. We don't need to be pedantic about it or rigid about it. Okay. But just like get up because sometimes of the antsiness is like anxiety from work or the fact that your brain, our brains cannot focus for that long, like get up. So yeah, that's okay. That's enough about that. <laughs> are there? No, no, no. It's, it's true. Because like, are there particular exercises you would recommend that help okay. us build better relationship with body yes. that you found for clients too? Yeah, different for everyone. And I'm not the type of person that ha- you have to be like, okay, you know, it's only going to be yoga or walks or, you know, it has to be outside. Like, no, you know, but we want to be honest about what was triggering because if something was like not working, like if, oh, if, if, um, you know, for example, going to the gym was bothering someone, maybe we just switch the venue. It could be switch the gym. It could be, you know, maybe they're going to a different gym. It could be, you know, maybe that person needs to take it outside. It might be running isn't for that person right now, you know, or whatever. Okay. It, it might be competing isn't for that part. Like even like recreational competing, like I just entered a 5k. I'm like, can, it might be too. Here's another one. Letting go of all tracking devices. Okay. Like you said something about numbers, right? Like how do we let go of the, the number on the scale? You know, titrating that away 
you know, you never know what's going to click with someone. They think, oh, I can never give up my scale. Or I can't ever give up my Apple Watch. Or I can't ever give up my whatever. Going like on a one. Okay, so fine. One day this week, why don't we try not using that? And I can actually meet with them, you know, like, okay, we're going to go like, let's do this, you know, and that, or they do it on their own. A lot of times they do it on their own if they can't come to me. And I'm like, I want you to pretend like you're, you know, say they're running, running like a child or even in the gym, see what interests you like what looks fun. Like it's, you know, act like you're a kid in a gym. So that's, so those are little mind, mind games <laughs> that I'll have. No, but it's, too. it's great. Cause you're like asking them to play right? Mm -hmm. You're asking them to get curious. It's not this like direct purposeful meaning exercise they did for this one muscle top or whatever it was. Right. I've actually speaking, I've met clients at playgrounds (laughs) that I know are like empty ish. And I'm like, let's get on the swing or let's play some pickup basketball or let's kick around this ball or, 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 or let's play catch. And it's not for anything. It's just, we're out here doing that, you know, or let's like, oh my gosh, let's run and touch that tree. Yeah. Because I remember when I was little, I always wanted to like run and touch this, like what looked like a really far off fence to me. And like, no one would do it with me. And I'd be like, someone's got to do this with me. And so, so just like kid, like things like that, that have like, no, especially this is good for athletes because they've often forgotten how to just play. Well, as you were talking about that, like what it reminds me of is like when we have clients who like are workaholic, so to speak, right? It's like, you have to incorporate that play again. And especially with like that level of athlete, I would imagine, right? Like that's their job for so long that you do like in order to start kind of shifting that perception and like bringing in more of those values, whatever, like you have to find a way to play. So like, as you were sharing that, I was like, absolutely. I could see that being like that nice kind of like into how do we just kind of like hold a little less tightly to this idea of like, I have to like be in the gym this long and I have to like hit this PR and I've got to, or whatever it might be. I'm also thinking about like recovery. So I have worked with clients where I'm starting to suspect it's both. And is, and I'm wondering if that's possible. Is it possible to have a person who is both addicted to exercise and it is an outlet of bulimia? Oh, totally. Totally. Okay. You'll start to see that you'll, you'll feel that they've become like dependent on it. Yes. You know, they need more and more like they're exhibiting those signs. They need, you know, like the addiction signs, like more is more and more and more. They can't stop. Even if it's like destroying their life, you know, or their body, you know, like that sort of thing, you'll see those signs of addiction. So yeah, for sure that both can exist. Yeah. With the withdrawal piece too, for sure. You see like, if they can't do the movement, it's like life is, is just not, it's not manageable. They you know, fall into a depression. Dark, yeah. dark, exactly. Like I'm not even going to get out of bed today. I'm just going to Netflix then if I can't do the, what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So then beyond, so then like beyond kind of those loving limits or guidelines, maybe like incorporating some play, like how do we help people move into recovery if they're in this kind of like exercise addiction place or even exercise bulimia, which I imagine they're going to be a bit different, but maybe similar overlapping things. How do we move people into that recovery space? Are there any like things we can do as clinicians? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I do is I will talk with the client like, Hey, like, okay, so what, what are you, first of all, I have to get their buy-in. Like, what are you willing to do? Like, we've done a lot of work prior to this state, like stage, you know, where I'm like, okay, let's, let's get into action. So I'd be like, what, what do you think you're able to address right now? So I get their buy-in and I make it collaborative. So with someone like we, we might work on again, like all the things I've already talked about and then also setting some parameters, like after, after giving them like some education too, on like, look, you're after this, this, that, you know, you have to health, right? Cardiovascular health, muscular health, like blah, blah, blah. Okay. Like your blood values are good. Okay. Right. If you're after this, I use their own like goals as like, Hey, you're not what you're doing. You're, you're, you're actually not doing your goals. Okay. So, cause you got to get the buy-in for them to reduce it. <laughs> and I'm like, you're not actually being helpful right now. So 
I need to make sure too, as a dietitian, that they're eating enough to support their level of activity. And just like a shout out here to, I feel like we haven't even talked about it, but like we, we haven't. Is like if they're not getting their period or they have, you know, some sort of blood marker that's off due to exercise, you know, like then that's something I'll use. Okay. Like we actually need to, like, you know, if the client's estradiol is down or testosterone is down, here, there's a reason your body is actually starving. Okay. You're not supporting your, you're not eating enough to support your level of activity. Oftentimes, too, something that need like, you know, for whatever reason, what does not work is like, okay, fine, I'll eat more to support the level of activity. If they don't have their period, if they have amenorrhea, they have to reduce their physical activity. It does not work with like, okay, well, let's just pile the food on. Okay, because the body is in a fight or flight stage. You need the body to get into the parasympathetic. If you're not getting into the parasympathetic, even with meals, if like you, you got people who are sitting there like they're doing all these things and no one can see that. Great podcasting, Lauren. <laughs> Um, (laughs) but like if they're sitting there like working and eating and they can't ever just like sit and do one thing at the same time. And I I will extrapolate it when you are washing your hair, when you are brushing your teeth, focus in like, you know, like mini meditation, like feel the toothbrush on your teeth when you're sitting and your mind is doing the mousy racy thing feel the points of contact. If they don't, if they can't be in their body, which sometimes they can't, we do, you know, what's called pendulation. We pendulate out. Okay. I see the ladder over there. There is a ladder against my wall. There's a ladder. Okay. And when I'm ready, I can come back in and feel the points of contact of the chair against my body of, you know, my feet on the floor, if that happened to be, or they're up on another chair right now, just lounging. Um, (laughs) That's what I'm doing. So, you know, like we'll do like kind of that sort of like mindfulness essentially, which can help them. And now I've lost my train of thought. Like, wh- I'm like, what was the original question? <laughs> now I'm into this. <laughs> no, but that is really good treatment because it is, again, getting them just to get present in the moment and just focus and do that active meditation. And instead of the mind saying, you've got to get up and move, you got to go do this, you got to go mm-hmm. do that. So a hundred percent singularness of mind, you know, which by the way, that's one of a DBT skill. So I pull a lot of DBT into my treatment. Well, I, I always think it's really important for addiction because it is very challenging to outthink a disease or a dis-ease that resides in our brain. We can't always in that moment outthink it, right? We sometimes need to outact it. Would you consider yourself or are you, I mean, familiar with harm reduction and what would a harm reduction approach look like for exercise addiction or dependence? Oh, it's it's all about harm reduction. You can't, you know, well, I mean, you could, you know, I could sit there and like lay down the gauntlet and say, don't exercise. I like literally never do that. Why? Because I can't. I can't. Like here, here's the thing. I don't have that power over anyone. And nor do I think we need to pendulum swing like all the way to nothing necessarily. It's like, like I said, we change the the modality, the time. So we put some parameters. That's what I was talking about earlier. I, I, we, we agree upon some parameters and then I have them, you know, if they're willing, I will have them, you know, write down maybe in the notes section of their phone, maybe on a paper journal, like, okay, you know, I give them some prompts, right? Like, okay, what did you enjoy? So I have them like check in before. Here's what I'm doing. I'm looking forward to this. Keep it short and sweet. Okay. So they know here's, here's the plan. All right. And we've already talked about the plan for this week or, you know, on a weekly basis, depending on how often I'm seeing them. Right. And then after they check in with themselves, how did it go? Did I stick to the plan? If not, what happened? What happened instead? What was the thought? And we can maybe do some behavior chain analysis around that if they can remember it. Like, you know, we want to get them to remember what was the thought? What was the, you know, maybe, or even if you can get to a feeling, you know, what was, what happened that created the atmosphere or the, the precipitating event that's, that now, now we're like, oh my gosh, I was in the gym for three hours or I ended up signing for an, signing up for a couple other classes that day. That happens. So I will set up some parameters for, for the client and, and with the client, you know, collaborate on that. But like in terms of harm reduction, that's what we were talking about. You know, that is like what I do. It's all about harm reduction. And I'll give a client. So 
depending, but most of the time I'll give a client, like, here's the goal. Okay. Here's what it would be great. Your body would love it if you did this. Okay. What are you? Okay. And you'll see their response (laughs) (laughs) on their face. They don't even see to say anything. They're just like, you know, like look of horror. And, and I'm like, okay. So, (laughs) and I'll usually use humor. They like start to laugh. Okay. And then, you know, every once in a while, a client gets really upset. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, okay, this is a goal. Okay. This is like what my opinion, what's yours. You know, so if the clients, it starts to panic in that. Uh, And honestly, they really start to like get really aroused. I might be like, okay, so let's take a step back. Let's take it. Like now we, now we're doing some breathing. Like I, I will, I will literally in a session, we're okay. Let's take that breath. And they're like, okay. And I'm like, remember, I can't force you to do a thing. You can leave here and never come back. You're allowed to do that. (laughs) You know, you can, you, you are driving this ship. Okay. You know, I'll, I'll do that. And then, yeah, that's how I, that's how I do harm reductions is get an agreed upon thing, you know, regimen, if you will, with a client get them to reflect post and, you know, pre and post, bring that in zero judgment. If they don't what hit the mark. Okay. You know, and we just talk, it's a process, you know, because it's not like, I don't know, it isn't like, you know, like, I don't know, alcohol, cocaine, a heroin, like we are meant to move as human beings. And I will say that to them within each of our abilities, we move in our own ways. Okay. Even if disabled, we move in our own ways. That's something that we want to get back to. That's something we want to incorporate. And it doesn't mean, you know, we're just going to like cut it cold turkey. I love that because it is very similar for us when we work with individuals with, you know, food addiction or food use disorder, because it is something that they still have to participate with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You got to eat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like alcohol, it's like, okay, well, never touching that again, but I deal with food. I'm involved with food every day of my life, several times a day, you know, and how do I want to, how do I want that relationship to look? How do I want the relationship to physical activity to look? So where can our listeners find you? They can find me on my website. So that's laurenantonrd.com. And then they can also find me on Instagram. I got to say, I, I don't pay anyone to do my stuff. So <laughs> you're going to see a lot of me, my girlfriend, us on hiking trips. Okay. Like, I'm sorry. And I'm not sorry. Okay. <laughs> like, so that's, that's, I'm going to follow you just because you said that's what you do. Actually, no, it's, like, I'm not, it's, I don't know how useful it is. It's at Lauren Anton RD. It's wide open. Follow me. It's fine <laughs> for what it's worth. Same thing. Like I, I'm on, I have a professional page on Facebook. I'm like rarely on Twitter, but I have a Twitter. It's LGA nutrition, but I'm never on it. So I wouldn't follow me there. Well, we'll make sure to get all of that in the show notes. <laughs> don't follow you on Twitter. Noted. Yeah, just don't even bother. <laughs> Got, it. Got it. Well, we have a signature question for all of our guests. We always like to tailor it, though, specifically to who we have. So before you go, Lauren, because I personally, I love like just hearing you share. And I'm so glad that I get to see you every month because then that means that this conversation gets to continue, right? Like I get you more than just this one hour. And I'm really happy about that. Hint, hint, Clarissa, come join us. <laughs> so totally. our signature question, yeah, right. So our signature question for you, Laura, or Lauren, sorry. Um, <laughs> if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about movement or exercise, what would that be? Hmm. I would say have fun, honor your body. If it hurts, it's okay. Give it a rest and move because it feels good not to manipulate your body into a certain shape. That's what I would say. Like, uh, listen to your body, treat it like a fine teacup, (laughs) piece of fine china. I love that so much. Thank you so much for being here, Lauren. It's been such an awesome conversation. Yes, agreed. I love this so much. (laughs) You all are great. 
Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.